Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, I think we're going to see some of the Trump administration health policies start to come into focus. Seema Verma has advanced in the Senate toward her ultimate role as administrator of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and it signals a more fiscally conservative approach towards funding of the social health programs governed by CMS, which impacts over a third of Americans. Well, the rhetoric that's coming from the Trump administration and from HHS Secretary Tom Price has been pretty clear. There will be significant changes to the Affordable Care Act under the new administration. Secretary Price is seeking significant reductions in the Medicaid program, and there's support in the GOP leadership for changes that will impact Medicare down the line as well. So with that in mind, Seema Verna was selected for the post. She was chosen because she has worked to advance policies that are aligned with more austere approach. She helped Vice President Mike Pence home state in Indiana set up an alternative to the Medicaid expansion program. It covered more uninsured, poor Hoosiers, but they had to pay for more of their care out of their own pocket than those typically covered by Medicaid. And they were also held to some strict guidelines for personal responsibility for health choices and keeping up with their premium payments. And, you know, Mark, physicians at Indiana reportedly have been quite favorable of the approach because they, at the same time, received more compensation in recent years under Indiana's Medicaid expansion. But the health metrics in that state still ranking fairly low in terms of health outcomes. And it's something our guest today is watching. Catherine Hayes is director of health policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a nonprofit, nonpartisan Washington think tank started by former members of Congress from both sides of the aisle, Senators Tom Daschle, Bill Frist, and Bob Dole among them, whose mission is to foster bipartisan efforts to advance important social policies. And they have produced a very detailed report on how the programs governed by CMS should continue to be supported in the new administration so that important gains in population health are not negatively impacted. Laurie Robertson also stops by. The managing editor of factcheck.org is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Catherine Hayes in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare has seen the light of day. According to reports, the plan being promoted by House Speaker Paul Ryan would eliminate the insurance marketplaces that have helped millions of poor and uninsured Americans gain coverage. Instead, there would be a new set of subsidies based on a person's age, not their income. The plan would make it more difficult for people, especially older and sicker people, from being able to afford coverage, according to those who've observed it. The plan would also phase out support for states that has helped them pay for the Medicaid expansion, which has also led to millions more Americans gaining health coverage across the country. The proposal is not without controversy in other aspects. Right-wing conservatives in Congress don't think it goes far enough to reduce government health spending. Also, the Congressional Budget Office, a nonpartisan review panel that gauges the economic impact of legislation passed on the Hill, has some unfavorable views of the GOP version of the law, saying it will replace an undue burden on many health consumers. 
And there's already pushback from a number of consumer rights organizations. AARP, the largest advocacy group for the nation's seniors, is decrying the GOP health plan, saying it will have a negative impact on a large swath of the nation's aging population. President Trump's revised travel ban is out, and while Iraq has been taken off the list of countries from which refugees and immigrants are being banned, it's still causing a serious ripple of concern. Many members of the American medical profession hail from the six remaining countries, including Iran and Syria, and currently serve some of the more vulnerable populations in poor and rural parts across the country, many of whom were Trump supporters. The ban could impact promising medical students from coming into the country as well. Syphilis is on the rise, part of a growing trend in recent years of a spike across the spectrum of sexually transmitted diseases. But syphilis, which was largely considered eradicated by the CDC back in 2000, has boomed back into existence in certain sectors of the country. Louisiana, Georgia, parts of California, areas grappling with poverty and where women have little access to prenatal care, meaning they're not being tested for the presence of STDs before they deliver their babies, leading to a spike in the birth of syphilis-infected babies. Public health officials are warning state health departments to get a better handle on the problem. The American Girls doll brand has been a hit with a generation of girls designing dolls that represent an interesting cross-section of races and historical periods, giving kids an opportunity for positive messaging. Now American Girl is entering the medical realm, offering an addendum kit that helps girls connect with the challenges of keeping up with type 1 diabetes. Children traditionally have a tough time managing type 1 diabetes, which requires finger pricks, insulin checks, carb counting, and a whole host of other preventive measures. The Diabetes Care Kit comes with doll-sized accessories, including blood sugar monitors, insulin pumps, and the like, which the girls can use to act out the very scenarios they must deal with in their own lives. According to an article in the New York Times on this new phenomenon, parents and children alike are raving about the American girls' Diabetes Care Kit. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Catherine Hayes, Director of Health Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, the only Washington, D.C. think tank dedicated to promoting bipartisan solutions to the nation's biggest challenge. Before that, Ms. Hayes served as the Associate Professor in the Department of Health Policy at George Washington School of Public Health and Health Services, focusing on the integration of Medicare and Medicaid services. Part of that, she served as Vice President of Jennings Policy Strategies and also worked as an attorney in the Health and Legislative Practice Group's at Hogan and Hartson LLC. She has served in both houses of Congress as a health policy advisor to both political parties and also served as program consultant to the Missouri Medicaid Agency. She earned her Bachelor's of Arts degree in international studies from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and her law degree at the American University Washington College of Law. Catherine, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you for asking. We've been a fan of the Bipartisan Policy Center for for a while now, launched 10 years ago by uh, a number of congressional veterans, Senators Bill Frist, Bob Dole, and Tom Daschle, to name a few, from both sides of the aisle who saw the need to create a nonpartisan think tank to tackle some of the nation's toughest social challenges, including health care. And sadly, it seems partisan brinksmanship 
has ascended to new heights, though I, I think it's fair to say it's bipartisan because uh, it's been <laughs> on both sides of the aisle that we've had had this problem. And uh, we're seeing this manifest again as the conversation surrounding the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And while there's been much talk from lots of people about repeal to replace or to repair the ACA, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners the current reform climate and where you may see the seam of opportunity particularly as it affects the nation's vulnerable populations? Well, first of all, I'd like to make the point that, you know, health care is very personal. Families are asked to pay premiums, you know, for an insurance policy that, you know, if they're healthy, they may not need. They incur more costs in the form of deductibles and co-insurance when they're most vulnerable. And Americans have very strong feelings about their health care and relationships with their health care providers. Generally, Democrats and Republicans think of health care from opposite ends of the political divide. Republicans tend to value personal responsibility and allowing the states to have control, while Democrats tend to value providing federal assistance to low-income populations so that they have coverage and having some minimum federal standards as a backstop in case states don't, in their view, protect consumers. So in 2009, Democrats and Republicans weren't able to find a common ground between these two opposite poles. And so Democrats ultimately decided to go it alone. There was no Republican buy-in, and the GOP has spent the last six years trying to undermine and repeal a law that they believe is wrong for the American people. Now they're risking doing exactly the same thing repealing the law and putting in place a reform structure based on their values. If they're successful, we can expect the Democrats to reverse roles and work to move the law back in the other direction. So we know that at least for the next few months, we're going to have to go through this sort of wrangling process. But at the end of the day, the only way to end this battle and to have a health care system that is a blend of the two ideologies is to compromise and to work together. And this is especially important for low-income populations who have trouble affording their deductibles and co-pays or have trouble even finding providers to begin with. Well, Catherine, I I think uh, you give a pretty accurate picture of what we understand the bipartisan divides to be there when it comes to health care. But I I do think there's this one area where there seems to be agreement, and that is that we always need to protect health care for the nation's most vulnerable, and that is the children. And that should remain a fundamental goal here. But at the moment, we're not even sure what will happen uh, with that in this new iteration of health reform once the funding runs out at the end of the fiscal year. You uh, noted that the Bipartisan Policy Center has just released a detailed report urging Congress to continue current funding level for the nation's safety net health programs such as CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and the nation's community health centers until at least 2021. Could you talk about the timing of this report, what's at stake here, and what your research suggests would be the best step moving forward? You know, I think we this whole issue, these expiring programs, they don't expire until September. They've sort of been lost in this battle over health reform. And what I think people tend to forget, as you mentioned, is that these are historically bipartisan programs. The Children's Health Insurance Program was enacted almost 20 years ago, and the fathers and mothers of that program 
were Ted Kennedy, a Democrat right. from Massachusetts, former First Lady Hillary Clinton, Jay Rockefeller from West Virginia. The Republicans were Orrin Hatch mm-hmm. from Utah, John Chafee from Rhode Island, and more recently, um, Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa has been very engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, the community health centers have been around for about 50 years, and it has long enjoyed bipartisan support. So one of the big concerns is that these programs, as I said, are just being lost in the shuffle here, and states are really at a loss of what to do. Their fiscal years begin, most of them, on July 1st of this year, and so they are sort of operating in the dark here. They're having to put their budgets together, not knowing whether or not the chip funding you know, they're assuming, I guess, it's going to continue, but they don't know what the match rates will be. They mm-hmm. don't know how much it will be. They don't know whether or not they're going to be required to cover other populations as a condition. So we really need to get this uncertainty out of the way right away, put that behind us, and then continue with the discussions on health reform. No, I think you captured that very well in terms of the orderly planning process. Your report, though, outlines some pretty specific guidelines for what you think is essential if the level of coverage for the nation's vulnerable population is to be made. So what what are you calling for Congress to do specifically in your report? Well, we're asking them to extend the program for another four years. And we ask for four years for a couple of reasons. First, we know it's probably going to take a couple of years to sort out whatever is going to happen on health reform. And in four years, it won't be an election year. And we're asking them to continue the same level of funding that they have had for the last two years. And we have to remember that this program covers, you know, almost eight and a half million children. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't move forward, it's almost a perfect storm, you know, these expiring programs and the uncertainty in the health insurance markets, particularly in the individual market that is generated by the Affordable Care Act debate. So in addition to moving forward for four years, um, we're asking states to continue covering the Medicaid populations that they've been covering and continuing to provide the increased match rate. That means the federal government pays a greater percentage of the funding until 2019, and then we begin to phase it down. Well, Catherine, we talk about the Affordable Care Act, and I just always have the sense that it affects so many more people in America than sometimes it's discussed. We've seen more than 20 million Americans get health coverage, some through the online insurance exchanges, and 85% of those who purchased insurance on the exchange received some kind of subsidy to offset the cost of that coverage. And then we had the Medicaid expansion being covered through the federal matching program by the federal government. And all this looks like it could be in jeopardy. One of the ones that certainly uh, concerns people is the whole issue of block grants for Medicaid, which would mean less financial support for the states and ultimately some very tough decisions about who gets covered and for what. What are your recommendations for continued federal matching and other financial support for the states? Well, I worked on the Hill back in 1995 and 1996 when we had the last block grant debate. In 95 and 96, there was an attempt to block grant the Medicaid program Mm -hmm. and welfare, which was aid to families with dependent children. And at the end of the day, they were not able to get agreement on the Medicaid block grant. It, It actually passed Congress, and President Bill Clinton vetoed it. 
And that was because of the significant cuts in the Medicaid program and his concern that it would not be sustainable over the long term. And if you look at the TANF program, that program, which was block-granted, really has not grown at all since 1996. So I think there's a concern if you move forward with the block grant, particularly among the governors, Mm -hmm. that they're going to see the same sorts of things. One out of every four Medicaid dollars are spent on long-term services and supports for the elderly and disabled under age 65. And with 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day and enrolling in the Medicare program, um, we are going to see in 20 years a huge rush of individuals as they hit their 80s who are going to be in need of long-term care. And we don't have a federal program for that. All we have is Medicaid. So people spend down all of their resources, all their savings, their retirement savings, and end up qualifying for Medicaid and ending up in either a nursing home or, in some cases, about half the time they can get services in their home. You know, there are some efficiencies that states should be able to make, you know, as they improve care and focus care on patients with chronic conditions. But there's this very large population that is very hard to control, and it's only going to get worse. So I can't blame governors for being concerned about this. We're speaking today with Catherine Hayes, Director of Health Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, the only Washington, D.C. think tank dedicated to promoting bipartisan solutions to the nation's policy challenges. Before that, Ms. Hayes served as Associate Professor in the Department of Health Policy at George Washington School of Public Health. Catherine, I want to go back to the beginning about this polarization that exists on the matter of health care. You know, you've talked earlier about the values that uh, Republicans have and the values that Democrats have, and it seems like they're both from Venus and Mars, but we're down here on Earth having to resolve these issues. And, and, and Margaret, we remember we had David Gergen on the show Absolutely. who talked about this issue of it wasn't a settled matter when it was done in a partisan way in that really the great pieces of legislation required bipartisan support to be settled in the American public. Tell me what the bipartisan center is doing on trying to bring people together that find that seam of opportunity and collaboration so that we can move in that direction. Well, the Bipartisan Policy Center has a long history of working on health reform. In fact, the first report that came from the Bipartisan Policy Center was the leader's report that was put forth by four Senate majority leaders, two Republicans, two Democrats. It's Tom Daschle and George Mitchell, Bob Dole and Howard Baker. The four of them really sat down and worked to try to get a compromise, and many of those components were included in the Affordable Care Act, those bipartisan underpinnings. Since that time, BPC has been working in a number of areas, mostly trying to help bring down the cost of health care in the form of delivery system reform, looking at patients with multiple chronic conditions and trying to figure out the best way to pay for those patients to help better coordinate that care, improve quality, and hopefully over time lower costs. We've also been working on coverage issues such as the Children's Health Program and these other safety net programs. And we've also begun an educational series. Right now, it's very hard for either side to sit down and talk about bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have to watch this game play out over the coming months. For something to be sustainable, they're going to have to have bipartisan support. So what we're doing is serving as a resource right now, and we are holding educational events on some of the more compelling issues 
to try to get people on a level playing field in terms of their understanding. We'll be putting out a couple of issue briefs on some of the bigger issues. You know, Catherine, it uh, occurs to me that over the years since the Affordable Care Act was passed, we just haven't heard so much about the numerous programs that were created under the Affordable Care Act that have had an impact on population health. And I think they've gotten lost a little bit in the heated rhetoric of the past year as well. One uh, example of that is the Maternal, Infant, and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program. Other programs focus on helping with addiction and mental health needs in the community. And your report analyzed is the impact of programs like these and how they make a big difference on long-term health outcomes and population health. Perhaps you could share with our listeners some examples of the programs that you've analyzed uh, and why losing support for these programs would bode ill for population health. You know, in addition to the 20 million people that have gained insurance coverage, there are a lot of people who don't have insurance coverage. Those who have not chosen to purchase health insurance or for whom it is still not affordable. There are also a lot of underinsured individuals. You know, a lot of the plans that are offered through the marketplace have really high deductibles. And to know that you have to pay five or $6,000 when you're going in to get health services, you know, a lot of families just don't have that kind of money laying around. So there are a number of programs that help fill the gap there. One has been around for over 50 years, which is the Community Health Center Program. Community health centers are located by definition in medically underserved areas, both urban and rural. They're required to accept any patients, regardless of their ability to pay, and they are required to provide comprehensive primary health care services you know, services that aren't covered under traditional health insurance policies, such as transportation, translation, and sometimes case management. In fact, now um, we've recently issued a few reports in our delivery system reform area that give additional flexibility to some of the managed care plans under Medicare and Medicaid to really take a look at some of the additional social services and supports that really might help people, including, for example, You have a diabetic who they don't have a refrigerator that's working, and they can't store their insulin. So some plans might be able to purchase a small refrigerator to store their insulin. Another issue is meals, home-delivered meals. A lot of, of senior citizens, particularly those with physical limitations and cognitive impairments, really need help. And in addition, um, home modification. There are plans and, and health care providers that can go into the home and take a look at where the hazards are. They can put up grab bars when they're needed and those sorts of things. Another program, as you mentioned, is the Maternal and Infant Early Childhood Home Visiting Program. really helps individuals, helps parents improve both maternal and newborn health. It helps prevent childhood injury and Malnutrition helps to reduce emergency room visits and helps with school readiness. So all of these things can be done through these programs. And and finally, at the National Health Service Corps, which too has been around for a long time, there are more than 9,000 health professionals that are part of the National Health Service Corps, and they're deployed all over the country in medically underserved areas where they can't attract physicians In fact, one of my former colleagues in the Senate was a National Health Service Corps 
uh, volunteer, and she ended up doing a, a fellowship in our office. But she was stationed in a community in Alaska that was only accessible by plane. So these are just such important places that we need to make sure we fund. Well, Catherine, you did just a wonderful job of uh, describing the nuance and sophistication that exists out there in the healthcare arena that's come out of health reform. And uh, we're proud to have been speaking today with Catherine Hayes, Director of Health Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, which just released a report asking Congress to continue support for the nation's safety net providers, community health centers, and children's health insurance program. You can find that report report and learn more about their work by going to bipartisanpolicy.org, or you can follow their work on Twitter at BPC underscore bipartisan or at J-E-T-T Hayes. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Oh, thank you both very much, and I appreciate your giving me the opportunity to be on the show and talk about this important issue. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this In his first address to a joint session of Congress, President Donald Trump said, quote, Obamacare premiums nationwide have increased by double and triple digits. And he went on to give the average 116% increase in Arizona as an example. But that state was the only one to have a triple digit average increase in premiums on the Affordable Care Act exchanges or marketplaces where individuals who buy their own insurance get health coverage. The average nationwide change was a 25% increase from 2016 to 2017 in premiums among the 38 states that use healthcare.gov for their exchanges. Ten of those states had single-digit increases or a decrease. The numbers are from the Department of Health and Human Services for the second-lowest-cost silver plans for a 27-year-old. And it's worth noting that 84% of the 10.4 million Americans with marketplace coverage in the first half of 2016 received tax credits that limit the amount those individuals have to pay toward premiums. To be sure, the average 25% increase among the 38 healthcare.gov states was substantial compared with the rise in premiums the year before. It was only a 7.2% average increase then. And there was wide variation in the average increase by state. Trump has repeatedly cited the high end of that range, Arizona's average 116% premium increase, but Indiana, at the other end of the spectrum, had an average 3% decrease. And some states show a wide variation in premium changes from county to county. As we've said, such a widespread in the numbers makes the report ripe for cherry-picking. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. 
Each year, more than one million babies die at birth, and another three million die within the first few weeks of life, often from preventable causes. And when babies are born prematurely, the risks escalate. Newborns, and particularly preemies, have a considerable amount of difficulty regulating their own body temperature, and without access to incubators, babies in the third world often succumb to hypothermia. That got former Stanford MBA student Jane Chen thinking, how do we develop a low-cost solution to the problem? My team and I realized what was needed was a local solution, something that could work without electricity, that was simple enough for a mother or a midwife to use, given that the majority of births still take place in the home. We needed something that was portable, something that could be sterilized and reused across multiple babies, and something ultra low cost compared to the $20,000 that an incubator in the U.S. costs. Speaking at a recent TED Talk, Chen said that they developed a cocoon-like device called simply Embrace, a thermal body wrap that encases the baby and helps regulate body temperature for up to six hours. What you see here looks nothing like an incubator. It looks like a small sleeping bag for a baby. It's waterproof. There's no seams inside, so you can sterilize it very easily. But the magic is in this pouch of wax. This is a phase change material. It's a wax-like substance with a melting point of human body temperature, 37 degrees Celsius. You can melt this simply using hot water, and then when it melts, it's able to maintain one constant temperature for four to six hours at a time. After which, you simply reheat the pouch, and it creates a warm micro environment for the baby. And Chen and her developers have managed to keep the cost of the Embrace baby warmer at around $25 per unit. Since launching the product in 2010, they estimate that over 150,000 babies' lives may have been saved with the device, which is easy to sterilize and design for multiple uses. The Embrace Infant Warmer has earned numerous international awards for design and efficacy, a low-cost, high-tech, portable temperature regulator designed to regulate preemies' body temperatures to ensure that they not only survive premature birth, but ultimately thrive as well. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.